what God has been doing in the past few months and great to be a part of baptizing Evie and you can just call me Ronnie or Pastor Ronnie. Reverend Ron, I always think of Reverend Run, like from Run DMC. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I am planting New Song Church in West Palm. We'll start meeting on Sunday evening, starting next Sunday. Um, and, and then we hope to launch in September, September 10th, the Sunday after Labor Day. So in the Pleasant City, Northwood area of West Palm. So it's kind of similar if you did Fort Lauderdale, literally, you know, because of the railroad. West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, you have uh, historic uh, black neighborhoods just north of the, of the train tracks in downtown that was planned. And so you have inner city meets gentrification. So that's where we at. I mean, literally six blocks apart is a housing project and half a million dollar houses. So it's kind of one of those dynamics. So keep us in prayer. It's great to be here with you guys. I'm going to try to preach short. I'm going to try to preach a PCA sermon today. So that means like 30 minutes in length. But I grew up about the Costa, and about the Costa sermon to be about 50 minutes. So I'm gonna try to lean PCA. That's <laughs> it, y'all. Just want to make. And then I don't know if I taught y'all how to amen, but you can say amen to me. But if if you if I know some of y'all came from St. Andrews, I know TJ, David Seeker intern in Chattanooga with us, uh, Theo intern with us in Chattanooga. So I could take a Presbyterian amen. That's like a grunt face, and then write a note. <laughs> I'll take that one too, okay? I'll take what I can get. Amen. Amen. If, if you want, i read our text, and then, and then I'm going to pray again. But our text today comes from 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I hear y'all going in 1 Peter uh, next, so I didn't plan this. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12, our, our topic is the family of God. The family of God. Hear the word of the Lord. This should be up on the screen behind me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but y'all, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct 
among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may not they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation. The Bible says the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, now we just pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that we would hear from you. So give us hearts to hear. And Father, may we be not hearers only of the word, but doers of the word. Shape us now according to your word, for your name's sake. Amen. You know, I don't know how it's been in Broward, but, but in Palm Beach, and I think in most of the country, uh, the past few years have been a little tense in our country, especially around the issues of faith and politics. Y'all, have y'all been um, paying attention to that, or is it just me, or, uh, uh, do y'all notice it, you know? And, you know, our president is a part-time Palm Beach resident, so we get to see Air Force One a lot, and we get to deal with our, our roads getting shut down. Like, imagine it, one time all of the I-95 for about five miles being shut down during rush hour. But the issue of faith and politics, I mean, politics and, re- and race and faith have been very tense in our times, and those tensions and divisions have even come in the church, isn't it? Now, look, I'm not going to do, I love John, I really like your pastor, so I'm not going to do that one, be that guest pastor that make everybody mad and say, leave, and you got you to gotta deal with it. <laughs> but, but, but there have been tensions, and I think even in the body of Christ, we've seen some major differences, some major tensions of strong opinions. And, 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 and it's so easy. The easy thing to do is always just act like it's not there, but it is there. And, 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 and here's what, it's not even the primary part of this, this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not Democrat or Republican. I'm not siding with either candidate or party. I'm, I, I'm, just, I'm just proclaiming the word of God. It's not going to be in politics. But if we are going to interact in light of our political differences, if we are going to be in the body of Christ among the many differences, not just politics and race, but the many differences that each of us have as individuals, we, we, we have to understand our corporate identity first. I think the problem is because we have our categories sometimes uh, misprioritized that a lot of times we see what makes us different in, in a much bigger way than we see what makes us the same. Right? Meaning what we believe about Jesus should make us feel closer to those who believe the same thing about Jesus than those who don't believe in Jesus but hold our same political opinions. You get what I'm saying? And so we have to be clear of our identity if we're going to engage this discussion. There are important issues without unnecessary difficulties and without unnecessary uh, uh offensiveness. How about that? Offensiveness. We should be unoffendable as Christians. There's this book called Unoffendable. I highly recommend it. But that was just a caveat. So today I think, and, and as we look at this text, Peter is speaking to uh, the, the, the church scattered mostly of Jewish Christians. And there were Jewish Christians who were under persecution in Rome. And he's writing that in the midst of persecution to remind them of their identity before God as the people of God. And I just want to show three things we need to understand in our identity as the church if we're truly going to embody the gospel as God intends for us to do, both 
and among ourselves in community and among broader society. So here, here are the three things I want to highlight today. Uh, one, uh, 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 it ought to change the way we see one another as individuals. It's going to be verses 1 through 8. It ought to change the way we see ourselves as the church, 9 and 10. And it ought to change the way we see the world, the broader world, 11 and 12. So to truly understand our identity as a family of God first, we need to change the way we see one another. Peter starts out swinging, doesn't he? He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. I mean, he starts right away like saying, put this away. Why would he start off so strong? You know, you know normally you're supposed to butter people up before you get in their faith. But, but he says, put away. But I want you to look at these sins that, that Peter lists here in verse 1. These are all sins related to relationships. They're, they're related to sins that destroy community. And I think malice kind of defines them all. And, and, and the other ones are examples of how malice may manifest in community. But I don't know about y'all, but, but sometimes it's hard to get along with people. Even our same race, even our same blood and DNA, even someone who we gave a marriage vow to, sometimes it's just hard to get along. Right? That's what Rodney King said, can we all just get along? It is hard to get along. And so coming into a big community of people can be scary sometimes. Isn't it? Like I was scared to death coming into PCA 1 because I thought I was going to be the first black PCA person ever, <laughs> ever. Two, I've never seen so many white people in my life. And, you know, I'm, not, I, I, I'm learning to enjoy it, but I didn't have a, lot, a great appreciation for the acoustic guitar. But I'm getting there. Because gospel's changing now. Travis Green is gospel and his uh, acoustic guitar led. So God is good. But, but, but relationships are scary. And you want to protect yourself. And identity comes into place, right? Yeah, I'm reformed and I love reform, but I'm still a brother. But I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm for cross-cultural, but I'm still a conservative, uh, idealist politically. Wherever these identities, relationships scares us. And a lot of times we see people as threats. And so we withdraw from one another. We compete against one another. We sin against one another. And it's so easy to hide. And so Peter begins by saying all the sins that, that can hurt relationships Put them away because if we allow those to predominate, it will destroy relationships. And I know it's hard to get along with people. It takes a lot of work. But as we're going to see as we work through this text, we need one another. Unity is not a convenience. It's not an option. It's a necessity in our identity as a church. Now, I'm speaking about broad Christian unity. I'm not even on the racial reconciliation together. Now, no one person possesses everything that God has to give to his people. No one local church even possesses it. Because in America, we have so many churches, we tend to attract people who have the same giftings of, of like the leadership. We need one another. So it says, put away these sins. And, and how do we put away these sins? And how do we begin to see our need for one another and come together in spite of our differences, in spite of how scary it can be to deal with people at times? He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. 
It's what attracts us. It's what is our greatest desire and nourishment, the milk of the word of God. We may differ on politics. We may differ culturally and racially, but we agree in that we said we have tasted of the goodness of God and it is good and it is necessary. And so whatever differences we have, we have the same taste. You know, when you go to a football game, it's crazy. People who don't like each other can root for the same football team. And for the Dolphins, you know, man, you know, God, we, we can weep together. <laughs> <laughs> but when we have things in common, it brings us together. He's saying the word of God brings us together. And we have intense desire, craving to experience his word, the truth of the gospel, and to grow in it, it ought to bring us together. It's intense longing for God that trumps all the things that divide us, that make us different. Long for God. And I have a cousin who, uh, she's coming to visit again soon, and, and she came to visit a few months back, and she had a newborn, and we grew up like brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, my cousin, her father, um, uh, who's my mom's uncle, but they grew up, they're the same age, so they grew up more, like brother and sister, though it's her uncle. And we grew up like brother and sister because he died young. My mom took them in, and, 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 uh, and she came with her newest child, a little girl. She lives in Tallahassee. And it's, it's good for me. I love to play. I don't have any biological kids yet, but I love to play Uncle Ronnie, you know, because you can spoil the kids and send them back. And it's an infant baby. I said, you know, most of my nephews are older, so I'm like, now I got, all, I got six nephews, so this is the first girl, all boys. And so I get to hold her, and she's young, and I'm like, yeah, I still got the touch, you know, got to make sure I'm not rusty for when mine come. And, and, and I tried to give her the bottle, and, 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 and she wouldn't take the bottle. And I said, I messed with my cousin. I said, your baby got a demon. It, it, won't, take the, it won't take the bottle. And I tried to give her the bottle, and she took the bottle and threw it. And I'm like, she keeps throwing the bottle. And so I said, hey, go to your mom, you know. Now I'm getting uncomfortable. Hey, mom, come get your baby. And then she started attacking my, my, my cousin and tried to rip off her shirt. And I said, why is this demon child attacking you? <laughs> but here's what I realized. She was longing for the milk of her mother. She didn't want the bottle. She wanted to go to another source to gain her nourishment her mother's milk, and that desire caused her to throw everything away. And when we truly desire to sit at the feet of Jesus and experience his grace and hear from him and grow in him, it'll cause us to throw away our fears. It'll cause us to throw away our shyness. It'll cause us to throw away whatever separate us and bring us to the place where we can get the nourishment we need to grow. He says, like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk. When we come together, it's not just a cultural thing. It's not just to say I sat next to a white person, a black person, a Latino, an Islander. Because, look, I'm from South Florida, so I know. Well, all the groups of black, don't get them wrong, and you'll get slapped with a machete. <laughs> all right? If they're from the islands, they will slap you with a machete. You don't know what I'm talking about. Ask those questions. Like my best friend growing up was Jamaican, and I'm African-American. And then my other best friend was Haitian, so... <laughs> and I speak a little patois, but I'm rusty. But, but, but we, it's, it's, it's that longing that draws us together. We have the same taste. 
And Peter illustrates this by showing how we need one another. He calls us as a church a spiritual house, a, a, a spiritual temple. And if you know anything about building, whether you build them with wood or whether you build them by brick or concrete or whatever, one brick doesn't make a house. You need multiple bricks. You need multiple layers of plywood to build a house. And so we need one another. A lot of times being diverse is seen as that's nice for them. It's like a, it's like a, it's like an elective course. You know, it's not, it's not the general, it's elective. You know, it's like wood shop. It's nice to take wood shop. It's like, you know, but, 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 but not for everyone. But we need one another. If we're going to get all the fullness God wants to give to us, we need the diversity of the body. If the world is going to see on display the beauty of God's spiritual building by leaving a witness of himself in the earth that he is alive and he's active and he cares about this present world, then we have to come together to make the building, to make the witness bigger and grander. We need one another. And anything, if you know about building, he's using, obviously, the building, they're building with stone, Jesus being the cornerstone. When they would go to the quarry where the rocks would be cut, they would go through and they would look through for the cornerstone. And it had to be the perfect stone to be that first stone because everything would be built off of that. And so they would go and they would maybe be there for days until they found that one right stone that was the cornerstone. And once they found that, they would transport it to wherever the location is, typically down a body of water, and they would lay that stone as the foundation. And everything else had to be fit together and lined according to that. To build a building, I mean, some stone had to be cut. It had to be molded and shaped because it all had to fit com together compactly to make a building. And God is saying we need one another and it's hard and it's painful and it can be scary. But if we allow him to fit us together, to mold us so that we line up, to this, so that we, we are glued and sticking together, it puts on display a demonstration of his grace and love and power that's worth the pain of being chiseled, of being refined, of being cut, of being rubbed. It's worth it. Do we believe that? Because if we do It'll change the way we see one another. We're not trying to change or control one another, but we come together in submission to God so that he can change and mold and control us and fit us together so that we can display his glory, so that we can be used by him as the means through which he dispenses his blessing to the people of our city, of our neighborhood, of our church, even to those of our children like little Evie. It's going to mean a lot to see her growing up in a church that's diverse. Yeah. To see that display adopted by a white family, her, 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 her church family is diverse. How is that going to shape her in a good way? I didn't do that. Look, my family grew up, my grandma grew up picking cotton in South Carolina. Right? We, I ain't going to lie, I was racist, we were racist. And then my brother decides to marry a white New Jersey Italian. <laughs> and it were fireworks. But through all of that, God made me a better person dealing with it. I really struggled with white people. 
I mean, I struggle with some black people too. Don't get me wrong. So, but but I really struggle with white people. But but it changes the way we see one another. You get the point. God wants us to see we need each other, and that the work of getting along is worth it because He will glorify us. He will give His grace to us if we do it. And I know it seems hard. I mean, just regular relationships with, with a person who may, you may be very similar to, it's hard. So how do we begin to come together? How do we as a church to be, begin to display this building, this, this work of God? It says that he's the cornerstone, chosen and precious. It's when you find Jesus precious. When you say God is good. When you say Jesus is so good, what he does is well, and God, I don't understand it, but if you're calling me to love this difficult person, if you're calling me to enter into this difficult situation, I know you're good enough and you're worthy enough that I don't like it, God, but I'm going to follow you in a little step of obedience. When we find him precious and say he's good, he's sweet, I know, it begins to change our hearts. And we begin... To display not just our personality and gifts, but we begin to display the work of the Holy Spirit in a heart that's evil as ours. So it changes the way we see one another, but it changes the way we see ourselves. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Our second point. What is the church? When you think of the church, what comes to mind? Look at what came to mind for Peter, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. That last verse says, once you were not a people. All of us feel this emptiness like something is missing an identity in relation to others that I need. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you feel like I just don't quite fit in. I haven't quite found my niche. But here's the thing. We all know there's something that's missing in us, a, a greater identity, a greater need. And he says, once you were not a people. And outside of Christ, you know how we deal with this? We create categories. I'm black. I'm white. Somehow, you know, Africans from different tribes, who spoke different languages. Really, the tribes were distinguished more than the countries. The, the countries, uh, nations of Africa, is more colonialism. They all, in America, subsumed this one big identity called black. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Or, and, and it's not just black. Or, 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 or Europeans. Europeans come from England. They come from Finland. They come from Germany. Right? They come from Eastern Europe, Russia. But all of a sudden, when at one time this would be the Polish community, this would be the Jewish community, this would be the German community, in America we created this supergroup called white. And so you have these two extremes, white and black, and that's how we identify one another in many ways in America. We all create categories. Whether it's race and me working in ministry, I know guys that have killed each other over a street. Where I'm from is 18th Street and 6th Street. Two of the biggest gangs. Every, every house on there is a rental. But over that street, they will kill or be killed because that's my street. That's where I'm from. That's my identity. You get what I'm saying? We all fight to create this identity, whether it's money, whether it's geographic, 
whether it's social, some kind of social status. But here's what God says in the gospel. I satisfy that because while you feel like you're not quite complete as a people, you now are the people who belong to me because I chose you. And specifically, you become a people in that text by receiving mercy. By receiving mercy. You belong to a family. You belong to a social group, to a club, because you have received mercy. Mercy should shape us because we only have an identity by the mercy of God. He saw us identitally, without an identity. He saw us spiritually as orphans. As fatherless and motherless, spiritually, that's why Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. And he had compassion on us and mercy and picked us up and adopted us into his family. That's why mercy should define the people of God. Because that's the only reason why we have an identity. Mercy. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy on people who we feel like need to work harder. Mercy on people who we feel like are just taking advantage of the social system. I'm off, all off the manuscript. This is not on the manuscript. Anyway, mercy, mercy, mercy. The only reason why I was able to get myself together and work and provide for myself is because I received mercy from God. The only reason why I'm walking in the faith is because I received mercy from God. And that should be true of all of us. But look at Back to the manuscript now, how he defines us. One, he says in verse 9, we are a chosen race. You ever think of the church as a race of people? You know, next time you fill out that application or you, I just had to go to a doctor and they ask for race, you can say, Christian. And they're going to say, what's that? Amen. Or put you're an you're, you're Israelite, right? Not, not a Hebrew Israelite, though. I'll tell you down the side if you don't know what Hebrew Israelites are. But, 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 but look, you are a race of people who are defined by being chosen by someone greater than you into a status that is above your natural state of birth. You follow me? You are a chosen race. I don't care who your mom is. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care you know, if you study your roots and it goes back to whoever. Outside of Jesus Christ, your natural race isn't good enough to stand before God. Come on, come on. And so we need to come into a new race of people, and the head of that race is the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Amen. See, in Adam, we all sin in the first Adam that when he fell from grace, we fell from grace. But in the new Adam, in Jesus Christ, when he earned God's blessing, when he earned God's eternal love, we receive it by faith. We need to come into a new race, a transcendent race. And if that person was good enough for my love, my Lord, my father to choose into the family, who am I to reject them because of their political beliefs, because of their race, because of their life situation? If my father choose to bring them into the family, it must be well. It must be good. <coughs> Excuse me. And we're also a uh, royal priesthood. You see that? He says you are a royal priesthood. That's an oxymoron, you know, right? Right? You had prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. You couldn't be a, a king and a priest. Right? 
priests came from the tribe of Levi, right? Levi was Moses and Aaron's father, right? All the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Kings came from ultimately the line of David, of Judah, right? right? The, it, the promise was that there would be a son of David who would sit on the throne forever. That wasn't Solomon, but that was Jesus, right? We're a royal priest. That's such an oxymoron, but look at, look at how this is. We are royalty, but we are priests. Priest wasn't a glamorous job. You know, when they were in the temple and they were sacrificing all those animals and blood, someone had to clean that. You know who did it? The priest. Right? You know, if someone had leprosy and they wanted to see if it was leprosy or just a rash, you know who had to make that decision? The priest. And if they, someone thought they would heal the leprosy, who had to declare them healed? The priest. It was the mundane, dirty work. The work we typically don't like to do, I don't like to do neither, so don't get me wrong. I worked at Publix, and I hated cleaning up after people in the bathroom and stuff. I hate it because y'all won't cut your fruit. I got to smell like fruit, cutting watermelon, cantaloupe, honeydew for hours just to make them fruit salads. But we're also royal. We have privilege. We have the name of our Father. Here's the thing. We have royal privilege and leverage but that royalty is great, most greatly displayed in menial service. In menial service. Christianity, when it's been most effective, has actually been least politically powerful. Rome. What's going on in China now. So many times I think we covered whether we're Democrat or Republican power so much that we realize, we miss the fact that it's really in how we sacrificially serve and love that is the greatest demonstration of our identity in God. Not even necessarily in how we vote. The greatest civil movement in, in our history came from a people group where, that it was illegal to vote. Wow. Right? I mean, civil rights movement. And so I just want you to rethink your paradigms. I don't know what's going to happen. If God gives us power, if God gives us influence, you can be a Christian and you can run for office. Run for office to the glory of God. Vote for a Christian person if you believe they line up with the Bible for the glory of God. But all I'm saying is while we have our American citizenship and we should engage it, use it, leverage it for the glory of God, we have a heavenly citizenship too. And don't neglect that citizenship to the only exclusively use the American. Because even when we can't move Congress, we can move heaven on our knees. Hallelujah! Come on, brother. Amen. Hallelujah. That's Curvin's. That's my man. That's my hype man. It's an old hip-hop reference, but that's my flavor flay. <laughs> Amen. And then last, uh, I'll say he says we're a holy nation. A holy nation. Holiness means we're set apart only for God's use. We're a nation within a nation. We're American. I thank God I'm American. Look, somebody asked me, how do you feel? Look, Am I frustrated with certain things? The police shootings, yes. Am I frustrated with a lot of the political rhetoric? Yes. But look, I, I told someone, and my granddad put it in perspective, like, most of my ancestors would have died to live in the America I live in. They dreamed of that. So I can appreciate that. Now, we still mean we don't have work to do, we do, but 
most of my male men ancestors, black men ancestors, would have wished they could have lived in this America. This is about as good as it ever been for black men, even though we still got some major issues. But we're a nation within a nation. So, yes, we're American, but we also represent the kingdom of God. And we always should be showing our allegiance to the kingdom first. You can pledge allegiance to the flag. But we always have to be reminded that our greatest allegiance is to the kingdom. It's to the kingdom. And so I can speak out against my political party, even though I agree with them, because my ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom. So if I have to call out a Democrat or Republican, I can do it. If I have to call out an African-American, a Caribbean-American, a Latino-American, a white American, I can do it because my greatest identity is that I belong to him. We are a nation of people. And look, I'm not no political expert, so I'm not speaking to immigration, but in our nation, our holy nation, our kingdom of God nation, our borders are open. And if they come to us, we love them because God commanded us to love our neighbor regardless if they're documented or undocumented. Now, I'm not speaking to political policy. That's beyond my expertise. You know, when we talk about politics, I'm a pastor. You know, I don't even think our president understands all that stuff. I know I don't. So I'm not fronting to y'all. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it is our identity. We're a race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a nation within a nation. Do we think of that as the church? Because if we do, we'll be start caring a lot more for things we haven't cared about in the past. Because they affect someone I love. They affect someone I have a deep intimacy with. Amen. Lastly, the way we see the world. I'm trying to, I hope I'm not creating too much trouble for you, Pastor John. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Now, now, now we got to remember, in spite of all these identity things, Jesus prayed not that we would be taken out of the world, that we, but that we would remain in here, but that we would bear fruit in our pilgrimage here, right? Our sojourn, but that's like, that sounds poetic, but I say pilgrimage because that probably makes more sense, but sojourn sounds like just poetic. Anyway, as I read in the King James, it's just so beautiful. But, uh, but what does that mean? That, that means how do we relate to the world? There are two typical ways we do it. Some, some people, some Christians just withdraw from the world, right? Stay away, the world is bad. You ever seen the movie The Water Boy? That girl is the devil. Everything's the devil, Bobby. God doesn't want us to be monks and to withdraw. But we also make the other thing is we, we, we try too hard to be like the world and we just try to be so cool, you know, I come out in flashy lights. We're supposed to be in the world and similar to the world, yet different from the world. You get what I'm saying? And, and, and how does it say because while we care deeply for this world, we care that there are people who are in poverty. There are people who are hungry. There are people who are underinsured. We care about those things because they matter. I could disciple you all you want and pray for you and, 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 and get in Bible study with you. But if you, li- if you don't know how you're going to eat 
If you don't have a place to live, guess what? You're probably going to commit a crime to eat. You see what I mean? We got to be holistic. We got to be holy. We can't be so spiritual. If a person does not have a chance to get a job that provides for their family, guess what? When they see their kid hungry, they probably will be willing to take a chance to commit a crime. And so we want to help them do that because then we could disciple them and say, hey, you have a job and that's an incentive to not only obey God, but obey the law of men where it doesn't contradict the law of God. But anyway, let me, let me say it like this. How are we supposed to be here? We should be different to the point that we make the, the world can't figure us out. Why do y'all love like that? Why, do, why does a white middle class family adopt a little black girl? And sometimes I get offensive. I used to be one of those when I ain't going to lie. Look at them adopting a black baby. I ain't going to lie. Well, I had to repent too. Why would people go to a church that's so different from their culture? Right? Why, why, why would we love someone who we don't even know and be willing to protest for them or to sacrifice for them? But yet they also know that we stand for something they don't like. And so they also will say, well, they're kind of weird. They're kind of weird. We don't like them. But we need them. We know that when I'm sick, I could go to them and be cared for. When I'm hungry, I could go to them and be fed. Let me put it like this, because I, I told you I'm going to uh, be quick and short in my time. You know, one thing I did, uh, I'm planting in West Palm. I used to do college ministry at Florida A&M University and uh, North Carolina Central University, two historically black universities. North Carolina Central is in Durham, FAMU's in Tallahassee. And, and, and we know that a lot of black millennials are turning away from Christianity now, right? You know, the, the, the Black Lives Matters movement, just about all the leadership of the official movement. Now, you have the Black Lives Matter, the official movement, and then you have just a hashtag people put. They're turning away from the faith. They feel like the church is completely irrelevant to their concerns. I don't know if you're aware of that. And a lot of the pushback I get, and, and you've probably all heard this before, is that was, all those Christians were slave owners. And were enforcers of Jim Crow. Right? And they were. I mean, a lot of them used the Bible to justify it, right? We could be honest. I mean, we could have these conversations, right? I'm not mad. I love you all. If you ain't feeling uncomfortable, no, I love you. And I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna make it a happy ending. I'm gonna pass it that end on that happy ending, all right? Uh, um, and, and, and we can't lie, people use Christianity to uphold some great injustice historically in this country. Right? We could, it wasn't exclusively Christian, but it happened, and we need to own up to it and not deny it because it's true. We just make those people even matter when we try to justify it or deny it. I mean, every day. And I, have to, I tell people, yeah, I know. They, oh, look at these pastors with the money. I'm like, yeah, I know some pastors do that wrong. But I'll tell you what, when you look at slavery, did a lot of Christians comply or so-called Christians comply? Yes. Were they being obedient to the scriptures? No. One, and they knew it. That's why they forbid the slaves to read the Bible because they knew the Bible would expose it. But here's what I say. While they were complicit in the existence of it, you don't get abolition outside of Christians. That's the, that's the, like, that's the paradox. That's the drama of God. It was Christians. And in the UK, a guy named William Wilberforce, he was discipled by his pastor. He said, I feel called to the ministry. His pastor, John Newton, was a, a former slave ship owner. Leaving the coast of Africa with a ship of about 500 slaves, he felt gu guilty and knew 
it was so sinful, he repented and became a Christian and a pastor. He advised Wilberforce. He said, you know what? Instead of just being a pastor, use your political career to serve God. And from that day forward, Wilberforce made it his job, his, his mission to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom, in the British Empire. And it took 40 years. He was on his deathbed when it was abolished. He lost friends. He never married because he created so many enemies with this stance. Remember I said his pastor, John Newton, was a slave owner? He wrote this hymn called Amazing Grace. You ever heard of that one? In America, a group of pastors called the Southern Christian Leadership Council, Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King, they begin to say, we have to do something, and they begin to do a bus boycott and then protest to end slavery, right? And, and a lot of college students got involved, organizations like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and John Lewis was a college student then who's now a, 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 a senator. And look, but if you really study the civil rights movement, as TV came and people saw people being hosed and having dogs sicked on them, it changed the perspective, especially in the North. But I'm going to tell you what, it wasn't because they saw Dr. King as much as Abernathy being mistreated. You know what happened? White Christians from the North. White Jews, they begin to come down. When they saw white people being treated that way with black people, then they said there's a problem. And it changed the mores of our country. And, the, and how God works things out as though Christianity and the organizational sense was complicit in this great evil, Christianity in an organic sense was the only way it was going to be ended from a legislative perspective. I know I'm not saying racism is over. And that's our job today. Who knows what God is going to do in the future, but I tell you what, when we stand together for God's truth, when we stand together in the goodness of God, saying we are united by a faith that transcends every other social category, God works to do things that will be, be impossible to happen outside of us coming together as his people. When God does something in the earth, he does it through a people. He does it through a family. And that family, that people is the church. And the church has people from different races, different vocations, different social economic classes, different times in history. But it's through the church where he displays the hope that though things aren't always right, he is at work. And there is a better city, a new city that awaits us. Remember Dr. King, his last speech, he says, I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land from afar off. And what the church does is it says we may not get all we want in this life, but he allows us to see it and touch it from afar off. And he says, live according to that vision, according for that place that awaits us. And when we live in the hope of that city that awaits us, whose builder and maker is God, we make a tangible difference in the city we live in now. We're supposed to live from where we are in the future into now. Because I tell you what, what awaits us is so much better. 
It's so much better than what we have now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this church. Father, it's hard. Life is hard. The Christian faith is hard. And so now we thank you, Father, that you give the gift of faith. Father, and it's not just a blind hope, but Father, you tangibly show that you at work. You tangibly allow us to taste your goodness from time to time. Father, open our hearts that we would taste again and again your goodness and that you would give us the grace to endure in this life the burdens, the thorns and the thistles so that we may reap in hope the fruit of the world that is to come for your glory. In Jesus' name.